Welcome to the Recovery Lab Podcast. My name is Daniel Anderson. And I'm Bryn Knox. Thank you so much, Bryn. Uh, we are the Recovery Lab today. Drew is taking some family time and taking his kids to do some hiking. So uh, best, of, best of luck to that and that experience. All right. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Um, again, we are the Recovery Lab. Uh, we are here to normalize recovery. Um, we, we like talking with folks uh, who are in and around uh, recovery. And um, our main number one goal is to perhaps help one person not make one of the poor life decisions we made in our active addiction. So um, today we have a um, the wonderful, incredible Ruth Ann Rigby, um, who if you don't know her, you should you should really you should know her because she is absolutely literally the most incredible person in the world. Um, she's asked me to uh, make this announcement. Um, we have the National Prescription Drug Take Back Day. Uh, it's Saturday, April twenty second of this year. Uh, it will be from ten a.m. to two p.m. Um, you can find a drop off site near your area by visiting www.dea.gov/takebackday. Uh, you can also request a Narcan kit at no cost to you by contacting one of the following organizations. Uh, Stand Up Mississippi uh, Against the Opioid Crisis, and that's www.standupms.org slash hashtag, or uh, makemississippiodfree.org, and that is at www.odfree.org slash get naloxone forward slash. Um, and you can check these people out. Also put these on the website so you can check out this uh, and uh, and reach out to these folks if you need need some of those things. So, all right, uh, without further ado, today we have um, Alex Christian Moore, who is a life coach. He is in sobriety. He's in recovery. Um, he is, uh, works a, how many jobs? 14 like, jobs? Like it feels like 14 jobs. Yeah. I think it's four um, right now. <laughs> he, he helps people. He works with folks uh, in and around sobriety. He's also a, a professional, has his own business. Uh, he's a life coach. Um, he's just doing big things. And we're really, really grateful uh, for you for, for joining us today. Um, so what we'd like to do is take some time, maybe the first half of the program, if we, if we want to go a little bit longer than that, um, whatever, whatever you feel led to do. Um, let's take some time and, and talk to you about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. So without further ado, Alex Christian Moore, the floor is yours, my friend. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I usually like to have people on my podcast, so it's <laughs> nice to be on somebody else's, so thanks for yes, having me yes, here, yes. for real. Um, yeah, so the name's Alex Christian Moore. Um, 30 years old. Yeah, I had to think about that for a second. Um, <laughs> nice, nice. I was born in Kosciuszko, Mississippi. Okay. Shout out Oprah Winfrey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I grew up a uh, preacher's kid. Um, I was the grandchild of a preacher's kid, actually, first. My grandfather turned, who I'm named after, Alex Moore. Um, he turned a gas station into a church. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so, like, really put his whole heart into it. And then when he passed away when I was five, my dad, you know, I don't know if he was called or, you know, he just felt like making his dad proud, but he stepped up and took over the church. So that's how I grew up um, in Kosciuszko. Were so you close with your granddad? I was on his hip, like a lot. And out of like the OG cousins and the grandchildren, 
um, I was the youngest out of all my other, like, you know the family photos you have in your home? Sure. Like those original grandkids have those photos. I was the last one to make it into the original. So I was the baby, so it was just like I was the only baby in the family. So I got passed around like an offering plate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'd say we were close. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I don't remember much of him, unfortunately, just being so young. Sure. Um, but my nanny, who's still alive, his wife, um, it's like literally she's my, oh, it's like God, then my nanny in my world. Like this, mm. I'm just a nanny's boy. Um, she tells me often that I remind her the most of, you know, Papaw, my Papaw Alex. Mm. So that's kind of cool because I know the lives he touched. And Kosciuszko, like they said, his funeral was like people couldn't even get into really? the place. And there were people who drove from like states away just to come be there for that's him. That's awesome. And that's like the impact I grew up thinking like I want to have on the world. Sure. Yeah. Um, which I guess kind of turned turned me in, you know, to the direction that I'm at now. Yeah. But before we got there. Yeah, before. <laughs> before, because we can't <laughs> forget about what it was like. <laughs> um, so, yeah, grew up Kosciuszko. My, I think I was around – 13, and all through school, I mean, I homeschooled sometimes, you know, like, I remember, I think it was fourth grade, there was a Dixie Chicks poster that said, got milk, <laughs> in the cafeteria, and I came home, told my dad and mom about it, and they pulled me out of school, and I homeschooled the next year, <laughs> wow. so, um, we, we homeschooled, we did martial arts, you know, my dad was my instructor, so, I have a red belt in Tang Sudo, which is just a Sweet. weird little thing. Um, but I used to travel all around the United States. I actually competed with Taylor Lautner. Really? Oh, wow. Yes, before he got famous on Sharp Boy and Lava Girl. <laughs> um, we were 11 the last time I saw him. Wow. Mm -hmm. Did you beat him up? No, he beat me. <laughs> and it, thank God it wasn't fighting because it would feel even worse to say that Taylor Lautner beat me up <laughs> in fight. It was weapons. Um, and I did get beat up by him in weapons. But so we did a lot as a family. We traveled a lot. We were missionaries, we traveled with churches, traveled with karate, um, and we did that for a long time, but then 13, I think I was 13 years old, my dad decided to um, let the church go, like sell the church, for whatever reason, um, and we moved to Panama City Beach, Florida, to sit under another preacher, and that's where the good old cult comes in, I don't want to call it a cult, I'm, I'm very gracious with my words, I don't like Sometimes to talk about my true thoughts, like of what, looking back, it was a little cultish, and I'm just, I needed to stop putting the sugar on top of things. Mm -hmm. It was a little cultish, um, and I went from, like, us being the preacher's family and us doing things the way we did. We watched TV, you know. Yeah, my sisters wore dresses, but, like, they didn't have to be in a dress every day um, to go into this property where, like, boys and girls couldn't even touch while playing tag. We had to use a stick to play tag. Yeah, um, I would love to say that's the reason why I'm gay, but <laughs> um, I definitely don't think it's that simple. Um, but so we were there on the property, and we did that for maybe two to three years. And then my family, actually, we all got out of church for the first time in my life. I mean, it was kind of shocking. Um, so the place you were living was like a compound. It was a compound. And it was uh, like a religious compound what R religious southern fundamental independent baptist okay um they also ran a boys home um 
And to be honest with you, looking back, was I mistreated? No. You know, was it creepy? Yeah, looking back. But I think just like in many of our stories, we all had great intentions with what we wanted, but the delivery just sometimes didn't always match the motives. Um, So I'm not going to say too much about it. It was just very weird. And I'm so glad that I'm not 17 growing up in Panama City Beach on a compound full with other people anymore. And so your parents just all of a sudden were done with it. They were done with it. I think at that point, my parents had already, you know, this is my stepmom that raised me um, and my father. That's the household I grew up in because my mother is one of us. Okay. And um, she she lost me when I think I was two years old. Mm. And my dad took me and, you know, my other brother got adopted I guess I'm missing out a little. Well, I'm uh, I'm leaving a lot out because no, no, you're fine. You're fine. Yeah. So like my my other little brother, um, same mom, different dad. Mm-hmm. He got adopted by um, my dad's sister, who recently just passed away, kind of to this addiction as well. My goodness. Um, but anyways, they so my brother grew up in my cousin's household. Over okay. there. And then I grew up with my stepmom and my dad and my two sisters. Okay. Um, my older sister is one of us as well. Okay. So is my father and so is my mother. Now. You, you got it real. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I think I had it honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but to be honest with you, growing up, I was just like a normal kid. I was just very, like, out of sight, out of mind, I believe. I mean, I never felt comfortable in my skin. I always struggled with just feeling like I wasn't, um, you know, manly enough for my dad or I wasn't feminine enough for my mom's love. It was just like literally I felt like I was always trying to be something Mm. that I wasn't to get something from somebody. Kind of like a chameleon type of thing? Very much so a chameleon, which has taken over my life at different moments in and out of sobriety. Mm. Um, But, yeah, so that growing up, I didn't really realize the dysfunction or the toxicness or – just like the way we lived wasn't right, even though we were a preacher's family behind the scenes. I mean, all of us were struggling. Right. I mean, I, I don't, I, and it was just like pain was being passed like a ping pong ball in between all of us. Like dad does this just to mom, and then mom takes it out on me, and then I take it out on my little sister, and then my older sister's running away from the house, you know, trying to be rebellious. And I mean, it was just constant dysfunction. It sounds like a lot of chaos, which is, I mean, it's super common. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) There's no such thing (laughs) as a a non-chaotic family. Well, maybe there is, but. No, there's not. Um, (laughs) I'm going to, the more you talk, I have so many questions, but I don't want to interrupt you, so I'm about to get my notebook out. Do it. And I'm going to start writing them down for, like, at the end. Okay, I can't wait. Um, So where are we? So, yeah, so that's a little backtrack. Let's pull it back. So, so were you close with your dad and your stepmom at all, or was it was there a was there like a a weirdness to that, or a difficult thing to that, or what was that like? Um, that was a man. You know, I always go to give you a good answer. That's just my go-to. I've had to really learn how to find the good to say and everything. Because sometimes yeah, it's just I, we just really want the we just want the authentic. I, I'm working on it because I'm like <laughs> I go to say something or go to share something. And I'm like, just be real. Yeah, if well, you, you don't say something, that that one thing that you don't say could be the one thing that someone needed to hear. Correct. That could have been a turning point for them. 
Yeah. So don't hold back. Thanks. And be honest. All right. So no, I was not close to my father okay. or my stepmother or my biological mother. I never really felt close to anybody. Um, I mean, I had seasons and periods where, you know, the the child in me wanted, connection. you know, connection, and I wanted stability, and I wanted somebody to say that you're enough, or, um, you know, I, I would get the I'm proud of you because my dad was my coach in every sport, and he was very much so like, if you're not first, you're last. Um, Ricky Bobby, you know, yeah. and um, right. I just bought into that. So everything I did, I just became just obsessed with being the best at what I did, um, which I, I mistake, like, me doing sports with my dad and him being my coach as me and him being close growing up. I really thought that was how we bonded. But I can look back, and, man, I didn't want to play baseball. Mm. Like, you had to perform in uh, order to experience love always. in your head. If yeah. In my head. And that might not be their truth, but that right. felt like my truth. Sure. Yeah. It's a, th- it's a tough it's a tough thing and uh, it's uh, very common for for me and for alcoholics of, of all kinds and uh, and addicts of all kinds we had to I, I I did I felt like I had to perform in order to be loved um, yeah. and and I had to um you know I was in photography a, a great deal as a young kid that was my identity uh, you know period uh, I was a photo photo uh, yearbook editor and newspaper editor of the high school newspaper and like I was just um that was my complete identity and I didn't feel loved unless I could offer you a final product Mm -hmm. I had a photo to sell to you to give you yes and if and if you if you were happy with that then I felt complete for that that moment so that (laughs) yeah so I understand yeah I understand the feeling like you have to perform and offer someone something right not just be who you are and that's enough Correct. So, man, on. I felt like you were just like peekaboo into my brain, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> in my life. Thank you for sharing that, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, man. Definitely, if I perform, I'll get a result. If I don't perform, I get anger. I get punishment. I get this. I get that. It was like, you know, and we just grew up like throw some dirt on it. Right. I grew up real like just shut up. Just shut up and do it. And I mean – that left no room for creativity. I, I mean, I, I'm listening to you speak about, you know, being the editor at your school and the photographer and having all of that, like, art. Like, I don't even really remember being allowed to have friends. And, I mean, honestly, man, I, I just told somebody, like, two weeks ago, I can remember growing up in my room dreaming about what it would be like to have a friend. Mm. Like, what it would be like to just go do something or, you know, like, I don't know. I just wanted to do anything because I grew up with so much anger. Mm-hmm. And people, a lot of people, when I tell them that today, they're blown about, like, blown away by the way I carry myself. They're like, you angry? I don't see that. And I'm like, because you hide it well. I hide it well. if you show your anger, then you're not going to be loved. Bingo. So, and there's no finished product right. if I show anger. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I'm getting a little bit more comfortable with feeling anger, you know, and kind of sitting with that lately. Um, I'm just now scratching that surface, though. This course, is a beginning of story of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's 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 absolutely beautiful because I mean, it's it's not. I mean, we we put up so many walls and so many 
different layers to protect ourselves from being hurt, basically. Right. Uh, and to give ourselves the best possible opportunity to be loved by as many people as possible. At least that's what I, that's what I, I needed love. I needed um, appreciation. I needed all of those things in order to feel okay with who I was. And when I didn't feel okay with the way I was, what I realized was drugs and alcohol, mm. they really helped that. Mm-hmm. Oh, they definitely and did. And when something really helps me, I go full force, full throttle, and baby. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get <laughs> it. And I'm gonna get it. Is it just me or did drugs and alcohol literally fix everything? Uh, yeah, no, it yeah. did. You know, it, it, did. it worked for a long time. One hundred percent, it absolutely fixed everything until it didn't. Right. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Speaking of that, yeah, let's get when into it. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so all of that—that's like my—that's my before story before I ever touched a drug or an alcohol. I'd never. The most I'd done growing up was smoke a cigarette, and I used to think, like, if my family finds out, I'm going to die, and I won't be on this planet. (laughs) So my older sister, as she drank and, you know, did other things and started teeter-totting in her addiction, she would hold me smoking a cigarette over my head, which left me being scared to tell my parents about how scared I was for my big sister who was sneaking out of the house. Um, Fast forward, Florida. So when we left the church— at about that time, I was turning 18. My family was kind of crumbling apart. Um, my dad and my stepmom were at the biggest odds. They were on the catalyst of a divorce, which they've been separated since then, but they're still not divorced. <laughs> um, but It's a slow process. It was a slow <laughs> process. <laughs> for sure. um, but I left. I left Florida. And How old were you when you left? I was 18. 18. Um, and so... I told my stepmom and my dad, my nanny that I was talking about earlier, she had just had surgery. And um, I told my family that I don't know how I pulled it off because my family does not, you can't get stuff by them. They're like on their stuff. But I was like, I'm just going to go help my nanny recover. Like, I just want to go be there for my nanny and like maybe make her some sweet tea or cook for her or something. (laughs) I don't know what I said. And they were like, okay, we'll let you go stay. It was the summer. They were like, we'll let you go stay with your nanny. And so I packed, like, one bag, and I had a friend, shout out Michaela, um, who was actually my older sister's friend at first. I just became friends with her as I was growing up. She drove all the way to Florida from Grenada, Mississippi, and I don't forgot who the other girl was. Oh, whatever. It doesn't matter. They came and picked me up. And I just remember thinking, I'm terrified. I'm terrified. Because as chaotic and crazy as my family was in my home, it was security, and it was stability, and it was constant. Comfortable. Mm-hmm. And it was just comfortable, man. Like, I felt like, you know, I felt like the little mermaid. Like, an, I just won't leg. Let me go see. And that's what I did. Like, I just packed a bag, and I left. And when I left, I remember the initial realization of, like, when my stepmom realized that I wasn't really coming back, the amount of anger that she had mixed with, you know, the amount of anger my dad had about it. Um, about you not coming back about me not coming back yeah because they realized that i had lied and a big thing in my family was just like we don't lie right like you speak the truth you know we speak the truth to each other but we don't speak the truth to the public right (laughs) um love them whatever love (laughs) (laughs) y'all getting a little too real let me pull it back no um no no, you're right um so yeah man when i got to grenada i stayed in grenada for like two weeks and in that time i started smoking weed Mm -hmm. like you know, I felt so cool. Um, it made me feel like I'm just one of the big kids, you yeah, know. Yeah. I still was terrified of, like, 
big drugs. Like, I always thought, like, you know, I thought weed was, like, just such a baby drug, you know, compared to what I'd heard my sister talk about. Um, and so I started dibbling with that. I started drinking, like, I think it was, like, Natty Light or some <laughs> white trash <laughs> thing like that, um, which I'm, you know, I'm a little trashy. <laughs> so <laughs> I grew up, um, you know, whatever. Um, but so, yeah, I was getting into it. But honestly, man, it was just, like, the beginning. I can look back, and I haven't thought about this in a long time until, like, kind of right now. I was scared. I still felt guilty to take those drinks mm. in that time in my life. I felt guilty to smoke you know, that, that weed in that time in my life, I felt, I remember having conviction mm. and that's something that left. Can you identify what it was that was driving that conviction? What, what exactly was it that uh, your parents, wh- what was that? What was, um, what was so the root of that? So I think the root of it was I've grown up as uncomfortable in my skin, whatever, all that. I still believed in God mm-hmm. and I still wanted to be a good Christian and I wanted to do everything right. Um, and I just remember thinking, like, you know, this isn't me praying. This isn't me fasting. This isn't me doing anything for God that I've been taught to do. And it was just kind of like, I, I can look back, and it was like me putting my shoes on, getting ready to run mm. from God. And <laughs> this is the one part of my story that... um Take your time. I never wanted to run from God. I just thought I had to. I really did. I thought I had to go. You know, I didn't think I was enough. Um, I didn't think, like, you know, I was like, well, if I'm gay, because at this point I wasn't out. I had had, like, a couple of moments um, of experimenting, but there was no, like, true, like, I'm not being true to my identity at that point. Um, but I could feel all of it coming, and I was just like, I know whatever's about to happen in my life. I can't do this with God. And I remember closing the door, you know, spiritually. Because at one point I felt spiritually connected to a God. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't the God of my understanding, and it wasn't a God I could do business with. Was it your parents' God? It was my parents' God. And my nanny's God. And sure. still to this day, my family's God. Sure. Um, which... We'll get into it, but has now somewhat merged into still being a version of my God, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's like I can see it's not really much different now. Right. But, yeah, I I just hate, I hate remembering those beginning parts of my story Mm. where I was like conviction was there and I just closed the door on conviction. Well, it's, it's, I mean... I totally understand how it can be difficult, but look at where you're at now. Yeah. You know what I mean? So had you not gone through all of those trials and tribulations and difficult times and the conviction and feeling like crap and not feeling it, you know, you wouldn't be the person you are today. Absolutely. And the person you are today is uniquely qualified and equipped to help the next person. Absolutely. So everything that you've gone through in your past, the good, the bad, the evil, everything, now... God can use that to help other people. So was it really Mm-mm. a bad thing? No. I mean, obviously, we, you know, it would be, we would be silly to try to recreate the negative right. things that we've done. And I'm not saying that what some of the things that I did is 
we're, we're okay and, right. and, you know, good and pure in any way, shape, or form. But, but now that we're clean and sober and Correct. walking on this good path, we're, we're now able to use those, those awful times to be able to help other people. So that's the way I try to look at it. I, I, I can, I can be very quick to get into shame and, right. and, and, um, and, and what I've realized is that's completely counterproductive. That does nobody any good. So if I can come to terms with what I did in my past right, and try to identify it as a way to help someone else, then all of a sudden the shame and guilt associated with those actions dissipates. And Absolutely. God, God is able to kind of take a step in and be like, okay, well, let's, let's see how we can use this to help someone else. Yeah, so. there's definitely a message in all the mess. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that. Um, you know, and I think for me t- with, with – getting a little emotional about that. I don't know if it's so much shame and regret, to be honest. It's sad. It's just sadness because it was like that purity, that youth, that um, just trying to do everything right by everybody. It was the first time I said, no, like I'm about to do what I want to do. And so I can just remember thinking like, oh, my God, I'm terrified. It was like probably the scariest time in my life, Mm -hmm. honestly. Because I was leaving an, an identity behind and about to embark on trying to make an identity for myself, which insert drugs and alcohol right. found the identity for <laughs> myself. How um, fast did that like progress? Like, was did you go straight from weed to like super hardcore in a matter of like a couple weeks when you shut that door? Like, what does that look like? The progression of it. Thanks for asking. That's a great question. Um, no, so it was not a quick overnight thing with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that fear kept me safe for a little while, you know? Like, I felt like I just can't go too far. So I do believe that fear kept me safe from going full throttle. But, you know, as I went, so Grenada, at this point, at 18, I'm staying with somebody in Grenada, my friend, two weeks. I go home to Kosciuszko to go see my family, and I'm there maybe like a week and a half, and I'm drinking, and my biological mother reaches out to me, and... Oh, plot twist. Yeah, yeah, plot twist, and at this point, you know, so beautiful how God works, mm-hmm. just at that point in my life where she had never really been able to be a mother, she was actually sober, and she was trying to work this way of life, and so she shows up to me, and she's like, Son, um, I usually can give you, you know, I'm not used to having any type of say in what you do or what you don't do, but you're 18 right now. You don't have a driver's license. You don't have a vehicle. You don't have a GED. um, You don't have a diploma. Like, what are you doing? And I didn't know. So I said, okay, bet. Let's go see what this is about to look like. So I moved to Meridian, Mississippi with my biological mother. Um, and in that part, my baby brother, Damon, actually lost both of his grandparents that he had been living with and stayed with, and she got him back as well. Wow. Reunion. So it was a reunion. So the home I grew up in, you know, it was almost like overnight that just became a blur. Mm-hmm. Like I literally shut the door and just never processed anything about it. 
Um, and so now I'm in this light. So the chameleon comes in, and now I'm the big brother to my little brother, and I'm right. the son of my biological mother, not my stepmother. Are you so excited? Um, at that point, uh-huh. I think I was nervous to think, what if she goes to jail mm. again, or what if she drinks again? And then also I was so excited because I was able to smoke cigarettes in front of her, <laughs> and right. she wasn't judging me. And then, you know, I remember having a boy come over. Um, I'd had a boy come over to my mom's house. And I told one of my parents for the first time that, hey, I think I'm gay. And she was like, okay, so you're a freak like your mom. And I was like, that's cool. You know, <laughs> that was so not the answer I would have got in the other home. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> um, which, I mean, kind of weird, but whatever. <laughs> um, but, you know, I don't know. It, it didn't feel safe like that. It didn't feel comfort like that. But it felt like exciting, yes, because I felt like there was freedom that I never experienced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Freedom with a side of, like, safety. Freedom with a side of safety. Absolutely. And then to have my little brother who's always looked up to me, mm-hmm. um, I was really excited about that because I knew he grew up sad every time I'd leave a visit and I'd go back to the sister's. And he was over there just like, I want to go with my brother. And he couldn't understand, you know? Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, so I go to Meridian and that's where my mom is killing it in life. You know, she's like, come on, son, let's get it together. She takes me to go get, I think it was a driver's license first, or I had to get a permit first. I mean, I'm 18 (laughs) getting a permit. (laughs) Um, I get a permit and then I get a driver's license. I flunked that like (laughs) the first time I could not drive. Um, and then I got it eventually, and then she was like, all right, let's go to GED school or GED classes at MCC. And so I took, like, one class at a time um, because towards the end in Florida, I was homeschooling, just homeschooling, but I never completed my work. Um, so I never had a d- diploma or anything. So she got that rolling, and before I knew it, I was got my first job, which at this point I was smoking a lot of weed. And I remember my biological mom the night before my drug test – she put me at the foot of her bed and she like made me practice fake peeing in a cup. Like she helped me get ready to fake a drug test. Yeah, yeah. You know, I can't even see what's family for. If not uh, for well, <laughs> thank God for family. Amen. Praise <laughs> Dale and praise hell. It got great. Um, I got the job. It was Yay! lovely office max, you know, um, uh, I hated that rubber band shirt, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I got the job and then now before I know it, I'm, I'm, in college. And so up to that point, it was just smoking weed a little bit and dr- like drinking a little bit of beer here mm-hmm. and there, but like really scared to do anything. I get to college and I meet everybody on campus. I did not stay on campus. I live with my mom, but I met my best friend to this day, Raina Cook. Shout out to her. I love her so much. She's <laughs> due in eight days with her first child. Right. Love her so much. Um, but I met her and our two other friends and we just became the clique. And so it was a lot of weed in the beginning for everybody. But, I mean, the first semester I killed it. But I think I took, like, stretching class or something. <laughs> like, so, <laughs> like they all had a horrible GPA after the first semester. But I was, like, a three-point. I had, like, Phi Theta Kappa. I got into Phi wow. Theta Kappa because I took the bullshit easy. Right. Mm. Took right. the easy route. Yeah. Like I've always done in my life. Mm. Right. Um, but wanted to flex like I done did something big, <laughs> like I've always done in my life. Um, and so that's when, so in that friend group, that's when it became more normal. We started drinking a little bit more. We started coming to Jackson, going to the gay club, which is where I got my first boyfriend. And 
you know, all of that trash. <laughs> and um, and so it progressed. But in that time, I was I was at Office Max until I got fired for embezzlement from my first job. Um, I was still in like Pringle sodas. I think I stole like a DVD holder or something too. And then like I was doing work with the products um, and charging half the price, but pocketing the cash and not ringing nothing but like $2 up in the system. Boy. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, I was in there and um, yeah, do not steal. We do not condone stealing. No, um, but yeah, that was my story. So I was just a thief. And I didn't even know that about myself, but I started thieving. Um, and after I got fired from that job, I got hired as a manager in the express clothing world. Um, and I was 19 years old. And then I got hired at K Jewelers. So I was a diamondologist <laughs> and I was a manager in express. And, you know, so here goes like another chameleon moment, another identity crisis. So to say, like, who am I? How am I going to impress these people? What am I going to do now? Like, I lied to get the job because I couldn't tell them I got fired from embezzlement. I mean, I just literally started out my career in lying. Sure. Lying, fraudulent, insecure, uncomfortable, not knowing who I was. Doing the best I could, but still falling short constant. So how long did you keep those jobs? Like, Or how long did this like pattern continue? Um, it like two weeks ago. No, I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me call my sponsor really quick. Got to get honest. Um, no, so it... So I got fired from Office Max, and at this point, my mom had gone back to prison Mm. for a DUI. She had built up DUIs, and, you know, she had timed them. She had gotten them timed where, like, you know, that third one would never hit on the right time. The seven-year mark would hit, and it would fall off. And That a girl. Yeah, she (laughs) was like, you know, she she had... she can get it done. We're but, um, crafty. Well, she was. Um, but she went back to prison, and I used... Did she relapse? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I no, please interrupt me, because I'm a little scatterbrained. Um, I don't believe she had relapsed. I think she went in sober. I think she got sober with the intentions of knowing she was going it just to caught prison. Up. It just called out. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so that is when what the fun freedom and still being safe out of fear kind of went away. Because I n- now I really didn't have a mom. I really didn't have a dad. I really didn't have a something. Um, and that's where I just leaned into my best friends and I stayed with them. But they didn't even really realize. Like, they thought we were still in college having fun and just doing what we normally did. I can look back and see where that was where I started truly wanting to escape everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started progressing that. And I went from beer into um, liquor like drinking vodka at the gay club on the weekends. Um, and I, I just remember the first time I really got messed up, messed up. I remember like throwing up. And after I got through throwing up, I remember thinking to myself, this was so much fun. I cannot wait to do it again tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Like from the beginning. Um, yeah. Definitely an alcoholic way before I picked up my first drink. Yeah. Yeah, join the club. Yeah, man. Um but, yeah, so I think it just kind of turned into that. And so at Express, that's what actually brought me to Jackson. Um, we closed the location down in Meridian, and uh, I came to this one. Well, then we closed the one down here in Jackson at North Park Mall, and that's when I stepped out of retail for just a second. I thought I got a serving job at Bulldog Restaurant in Ridgewood. Um, it was my first restaurant <laughs> job. Um, and I started working at Dillard's. Um 
and then I left Dillard's, got fired from Dillard's for being late all the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so that never changed. I don't know. You were 30 minutes early today. Yeah, that's true. Well, you know, I've got <laughs> it works if you work at <laughs> Valid point. Um, but no, so after getting into the restaurant world, that is when my addiction, like. That'll kick it off. Oh, honey, <laughs> baby. I feel like it was gasoline it to a what? burning fire. Yeah, I can relate to that. Okay. So were you were you in a restaurant? Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, my God. She and that's the when queen of restaurants. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's what that whole lifestyle is, you know, when you get off work, you don't go home, you know, you go out with the rest of the Correct. staff and, you know, it's the certain bars where you go and you get home at 3.30 in the morning and that's like the norm. Yeah. And it just, oh, uh, it was, Ugh. it was, that's where it, it really, <laughs> we made it out alive, barely. <laughs> it gets my heart bumping a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Said so the bulldog. Mm. That's where. I that. That's I think where I, I got it. I a couple it. glasses from the bulldog. Oh, pint night. <laughs> pint night on Wednesdays. Yeah. <laughs> I grew to hate that when I later became the general manager of the bulldog within a year and a half oh, okay. of my first restaurant. Um, fraudulent. <laughs> okay, so like, let's not just clap too much. Because um, those glasses, I remember getting the truck that we had to get once a year to keep the storage, mm. and we had to rent a forklift to like. Get them off of the big eighteen wheeler, uh-huh. and I thought my gay ass was about to be a man, <laughs> no juror, <laughs> and drive that forklift. Girl, almost shattered so much money worth of glasses. I'm just, <laughs> I knew, I knew in karate it wasn't going to work uh-huh. for me. Um, but yeah, so that that's where it kind of got going. And so as I climbed the ladder at that restaurant, and I started hanging out a little later, and I started going to the next spot a little differently, you know, um, man. It slowly became less and less about, like, controlling it for certain people and being this way in front of somebody and this way in front of somebody and, like, playing the stage character like it talks about in the book, Mm -hmm. um, which is my favorite part of the big book. That's how I kind of knew I was an alcoholic. I related so heavy to every word Yes. um, when I read that. But um, as I climbed the ladder and I finally made it to the top, I was at the highest point in my career – but yet I felt the lowest in my life that I'd ever felt. Mm. Um, and so I could, like, I physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, I had done cross the line of alcoholism somewhere in there, and I'd, I no longer had control of alcohol and drugs. And at this point, I had stepped into the cocaine world, and I had stepped into the, oh, accidentally did meth world. I hate when that happens. Right. Yeah. Hey, when that one happened. I think Um, that happened like 7,200 times. Yeah, (laughs) the accidentally. Like, I thought it was Coke. Like, thinking that sounded way better. Um, So, yeah, the bulldog is where it really, it really progressed. Hold on, hold on. There were people that did drugs in a restaurant Mm. environment? I know. Shocking. (laughs) I, I just, you know. I, th- I don't know. I, I try not to speak too much on it. <laughs> I feel like still somehow, like, the cops are going to come get me for something that I've done, you know? <laughs> not really. So, what did you... So, we're into hard drugs now. Yes. You're in a career that you're sort of finding a whole new identity in. Yeah. What happens next? Um, You know, before what happens next, I've got to say, like, at that point of being, like, the boss or whatever, I'd started, like, I don't want to sugarcoat it. It was embezzling money. 
I was borrowing from the master bank to, and then out of my paycheck, I was like 800 in the hole to the bank before I ever could receive a payday and then paying a bill and then paying this. And you know what I mean? Yeah. What happens next is, um, after yet another failed straight relationship with a girl, um, (laughs) (laughs) Jesus, Um, I really thought I was doing something. Um, Poor thing. I mean, shout out to all the girls who just had to (laughs) put up with me throughout my identity crisis. I love you. You're beautiful. And we love women. Um, And I'm sorry. Um, But I met a guy. And this is actually the guy that I got sober with, um, which was a completely unexpected turn in my life Uh, when I met him. He was stable. He was kind. He was um, not afraid to speak his truth. And, like, you know, like, he had everything that I wanted and I never had. And, I mean, whatever the motive may be in the beginning, I wanted him in my life. Mm -hmm. And so I went after it. Um, And we started dating. And at the – I think we were, like, three months in, I had – Due to chasing that cocaine addiction and everything, I'd owed yet again to the bank. But I stayed up all night on drugs one day during Cinco de Mayo. Cinco de Mayo of 2019 was one of the last all-nighters that I can remember. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd stayed up all night. I was dating him. And uh, the Mexican restaurant was right up the street on fortification, whatever that little place is. Yeah, Cazuela or whatever. I was on the um, patio on Cinco de Mayo and I didn't stay on the patio all day after staying up all night. And my assistant general manager, who thank God for her, I love her so much. I'm so grateful for every person in my story, mm-hmm. you know, like the people who held me accountable, the people who all of it. Um, but she sh- got off of a shitty shift that she had to go in and save because the general manager didn't show up to work. His phone they couldn't get him on the phone because little did they know he wasn't paying his phone bill because he couldn't afford it. Right. Um, you know, I didn't have insurance on my car. I didn't have a tag on my car. Um, you know, like literally not existing, not living, not thriving by no means. Um, but she shows up to that place not knowing I was there just to drink the day away herself. Like she's not one of us. Um, and she was like, just letting you know, I called Valerie. Um, and Val is a dear friend of mine, big part of just somebody who's been an amazing friend and role model in my life. Um, when I didn't really see hope or the light, she was just like, you don't always have to be working on something. Like, you don't have to perform for me. Um, but she was my boss, and she was the RM of the restaurant that I managed. And so she was coming from Louisiana, and she said she's coming tomorrow. And she's, I don't think it's going to be good for you. And so I just knew, like, I was like, okay, all of this is about to be over. It was kind of like that time I left Florida. I was thinking, like, I don't know what's coming next, but I know I'm about to have to close the door and just flush this away. Um, All of this sounds pretty exhausting. Yeah, exactly. Like, literally talking about it still to this day, I mean, my heart rate, like, just bumps because it was always, like, Dude, I was just never where I was. Yeah. I was just never where I was. I was either morbidly reflecting or mm-hmm. future-driven or right. always in fear or anger, or, you know, or I'm a victim because my life's so shitty and I'm so good to all these people and they're not treating me right. Yeah. Um, And do they know how fucking special I am, you right. know? 
Um, little did I know, I didn't know how special I was or how special I wasn't. Um, but she showed up, and I had a conversation, and she was like, I'm just going to let you know. I could fire you right now. Um, I, and in this time, I just met my boyfriend. I just went to him and told him, like, I hadn't done payroll that day. It was a Monday. I had not done payroll so that I could pay back the bank. She was on the way. And I was like, I need to borrow, like, $300. I just met this guy. He let me borrow $300. <laughs> um, and then I would cash my check and after I got fired <laughs> or gracefully let go of and paid him back. And we started dating. And that's how it was for the next, like, three months. I went into completely, like, now I'm not responsible for nothing, nobody. Definitely did not respect him, did not respect the relationship, did not respect myself or anything. I was just literally on the biggest, like, FU mode that I had ever been in in my addiction. Um, and anybody around Jackson, which is a lot of people, know what that version of Alex Moore was like. Um, I thought we were having fun. I was in a lot of pain, a lot of pain, and I was just exhausted. I mean, it was all over me, and I didn't see it. I had no hope, no light. Um, I've never really been one to struggle with um, suicidal. Can I say that on here? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I I, I try to be careful with topics, you know, because it can be very timid. The world's hypersensitive, and I'm like, very sensitive. I love you all, but, like, I'm not, you know. No, Um, this is, you're, you're good. Um, so yeah, I never really struggled with that, but I will say that is the closest, um, I can relate to somebody with suicidal thoughts or depression or anything else like that real dark struggles. Um, mine wasn't there quite so much, but I I probably wasn't far away from that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, if I would have kept going, but I just remember him telling me one day we had gotten into yet another cocaine raged fight, um, he had lost a bag of my cocaine, and that's I, a deal breaker. Oh, yeah. honey, I turned into <laughs> I turned into the Hulk. Like he had to lock himself in my car, and I was beating the shit out of my car, like yeah. dents in my car. Definitely not a life coach. <laughs> in that moment. Um, you know, and that's what he dealt with. And then I just remember him telling me one night, he was like, "This is not so much like so that you can make my life easier. I'm just letting you know, like I'll probably leave you." Like, I'm probably going to leave you. Um, I just want to know that you're okay because you really are a good person and I see what you're capable of, but I can't put up with this. Um, And so, you know, I grew up in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous due to my biological mother when I visited her. Like, I was, hey, I'm Alex. I'm the son of an alcoholic. That's what I used to say in AA meetings at, like, seven years old, eight years old. Um, And I remembered from a little bout with one of my ex-girlfriends who said I was an alcoholic and I went to AA for a week to prove to her that I was not an alcoholic. That relationship didn't work for more than one reason. Uh, But I remembered Yana. I remembered the yellow building. And I'd had a night out at George Street. Do y'all know about old George Street, old tavern? Oh, yeah. We love them, uh, which I really do. Shannon, like, love Shannon, the owner of tavern. Um, But... I'd, like, jumped off of the DJ booth and <laughs> um, thought that there was a crowd, like, just waiting for my return. <laughs> I thought I was, like, fucking a rock star. Yeah. <laughs> and I, like, went through the floor, and this little spot right here has never really truly healed up, which is a cool reminder for me to remember mm-hmm. my last night of getting, like, wacky, like, completely wacky. Um, I think God does that on purpose. <laughs> um, but... 
I remember waking up the next day hungover, had a meeting with my boss at Saltine. I'd left Bulldog. I'm not sober yet, but I'm serving tables at Saltine. I went and got a server job. I wanted no titles, no responsibility. I was just about to figure out who I was. Take it easy, a.k.a. still get fucked up and not have any responsibility. Um, And then one day I was supposed to get off work after that meeting, and I remember him setting me down. So I just had this conversation with this guy that I was interested in, and he said, like, you're probably not – we're not going to stay together. Like, I'm not going to be able to put up with this. And then I go to my work – and my boss is like, Alex, you are one of the best people people I've ever met in my life. The fucking customers love you. He didn't say it quite like that. But he was like, you are a shit worker. Like, I do not know how you were the general manager of a restaurant. Those were like some of his exact words. And so it just for the first time in my life, I felt seen. I felt found out. I felt like everybody was on to me. And I couldn't hide it anymore. Right. Um, and that's where I was like, okay. I think I need some help, but I didn't tell him I needed help. I didn't tell my boyfriend that I needed help. I didn't tell anybody I needed help. I made plans for happy hour that night. Um, and when I pulled out of the little gate to go left to happy hour and meet some of my old friends, it was like, you know, I, I mean, I drove my car, but I still don't remember, like, consciously driving my car right. I had every intention to go left. But before I knew it, I was right by Pig and Pint, turning right. Then I turned mm-hmm. left, and I turned left. And before I knew it, I was in the back parking lot of Yana, and I just broke down. I, I broke down. Um, you know, and that was the first example of God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. Mm-hmm. And um, I sat in my car. I was so early. I was so early for that meeting. I don't think many people were there, but I'm not going to break her anonymity, but a lady... That has become one of my closest, trusted, trusted friends along this journey. Love her to death. Um, she sat out back and met me on the porch and lit up a cigarette with me and told me, come on in. And she helped me get a cup of coffee. And she talked to me about her ex-husband and kind of like took my mind off for just a split second of me. And, um, you know, we sat there and talked and, I talked to her for probably about an hour and a half before that meeting, and then I walked into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous for the first time. And I said, hey, I'm Alex, and I'm an alcoholic for the first time. And it was no longer I'm the son, I'm the nephew, I'm the cousin, I'm the this. It was like game on, it was me. What I think is interesting real quick, and I have to say this, is when you said that, you exhaled. Yeah. And for a lot of people, that's what – our first meeting is like mm-hmm. we can exhale for the first time. Absolutely. And it's interesting that that happened as you said that just now. Yeah. Because that's exactly what happens is we can, we can breathe. We can finally breathe. <sighs> we can exhale. The journey is starting now. Yeah, man. And so that is, I think that day was July 19th. To, and I don't think I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty clear. Let, let about me go this. ahead and be clear. <laughs> I know it was July 19th, 2019. The year before a pandemic. Yeah. And um, I just I just was like, okay, I have no idea what's going on. You know, I really didn't. Um, but that exhale was enough to let me know that I wanted to go back mm-hmm. again. Um, and I didn't say anything to my boyfriend at the time. I didn't say anything to any friends at the time. But, like, I literally was known as the party animal around town. So, like, you know, the weekend was coming and people were trying to get them plans on. And like, so my phone was, I just remember it blowing up like it used to. 
and like the people I'd been entertaining and performing for and just all of the masses still needing something. And I knew that like I was not going to be able to do that because I was about to do this, whatever this is. Um, and so I wanted to make sure it was for me though. Cause I've been known to say I'm going to quit drinking for people. Cause I tried to manage it for a long time, mm-hmm. switching the wine, doing, you know, doing the whole yeah, thing, yeah, yeah, doing yeah. the little dancey dance. Sure. I couldn't, um, I knew I was an alcoholic when I sat down. I knew there was no more lying to myself. Um, do you think that you didn't tell people though? Because like, almost like your disease was telling you, but like, but if I change my mind, I don't want everyone. To oh my like, God! Absolutely. You know what I mean? Like, I had a hard time saying anything to anybody because it was like I was like, maybe. It, what if it, it's, like, not that bad? Then all of a sudden, I'm this person who has a problem, so now I'm not going to be able to have fun with these people anymore because they're going to think, oh, I have a problem. Absolutely. So you just keep it to yourself. Absolutely. No, that's a great point because that's exactly what it was. I knew I was an alcoholic. I knew I was in the right place. I knew I wanted to go back that second day, but I still, in my mind, was about to do it like I've done everything else and do it like a trend and post it on Facebook with hashtag 30 days and be like, (laughs) I'm motherfucking sober, (laughs) you know, and like, hey, look at me, look at me, look at me, because everything has always been about look at me. Mm -hmm. Um, But somehow, I mean, y'all know how it happens. You, No matter what, what your motive is that drives you into the rooms, if you come in and you do what it is that they suggest you do and do what it is that we do, You'll get what we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's exactly how it happened. So I didn't have the intentions to stay forever or stay sober forever. I just wanted my life to get better. And I wanted to feel okay. Was it difficult for you to go from that first meeting to the next meeting you went to and stay sober in between the two of those? Um, yes-ish. Uh-huh. Um, because I wasn't telling my boyfriend. Mm-hmm. I didn't come home and tell him that night. Uh, but... He wanted to go out, and I didn't want to go out, and that was the first time he was like, what's up? But I think he still went out. But I remember coming home from my first AA meeting to a partner who drank. Mm-hmm. That was fucking hard. Yeah. yeah. And I've never owned that like that. I've never told many people about it, but it was very hard. And How it was did strict will that? willpower. Willpower, yeah. Complete willpower. Mm-hmm. And complete willpower because watch what I'm about to be able to say I did. Right. Mm. It was not because, like, whatever else. It was just like, I can't wait for this story, you know? Yeah. Like, I'm the actor. This is going to make me look so good. I'm going to look so <laughs> good <laughs> in 30 days. Like, maybe they'll actually invite me to the party next time right, because exactly. I'm not a shit show anymore. Right, right. <laughs> so, our, so our goal here is 30 days. Like yeah. Just kind of, uh, like, subconsciously. Just like subconsciously. Okay. 30 days. Um, but in those 30 days, probably, like, two weeks, actually, I heard the word sponsor. I heard the word sponsor, 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 sponsor. <laughs> and then I heard book, 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 book. You know, I, what I heard was preacher and I heard Bible. Mm-hmm. And I was like, fuck that. You know, and then I looked up on the wall around like step three. You know, I'm like, oh, God, God. <laughs> you know, right. step four, I'm like, what are you talking about an inventory? I've done an inventory of a restaurant. I'm not about to do an inventory <laughs> right, on me, right. baby. Um, and I was already figuring out how I was going to get the right sponsor, do these cute little steps, do the do, mark the mark. Um, but I remember in one of my meetings, somebody had said, get a sponsor that scares you a little bit. Hmm. 
Yeah, and um, I, I don't know if that's the truth or if that's the right way. I'm just saying, like, I remember that's what stood up to me, stood out to me the most. And so I listened to everybody in one of those meetings. Um, and I think I was, like, two weeks in, and I heard this one um, guy who was, like, just no sugarcoat. And it felt familiar the way I grew up in my home. Like, just somebody who just shoots it straight and doesn't care about emotions. Like, I remember him saying something like, fuck your feelings, you'll get drunk. Right. And I was just like, oh, my God. Like, I'm <laughs> terrified. But I was like, I think I want him to be my sponsor. Um, so I, like, walked up to him outside on the bricks of Yana, and I was like, <laughs> it's so embarrassing, but it is what it is. He was, like, sitting there talking because he had been sober, I think, now at that point, four and a half. He had been sober around the time I'm sober now. Like four and a half years, maybe five years, something like that. Um, maybe it was five. Um, but he was sitting out there talking to people because he doesn't just talk in the meetings. Like he's out there talking to the newcomer at the end of the meeting on right. the pavement. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how I've grown up in AA. Um, you like talk that. to that newcomer. Mm-hmm. You don't just say something in a meeting and just let them walk to their car. No, hey, man, what's up? How's your day going? What you want to talk about? Like just distract them the way that lady did for me, the way my sponsor did, you know? I'm so glad um, you said that. Absolutely. And so. I saw him over there, and I was, like, so scared. Like, I have this thing with men. You know, I, I'm at this point, I've done lived a gay life. Like, I don't feel like I can truly be who I am. I'm not comfortable with my, my skin. I think I'm going to hell still for being gay. And what will this man think of me if I ask him, a gay guy, to sponsor me is the way I was thinking. Um, and I walked up, and I was like, hey, man. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, it would have cool. <laughs> and I was like, um... Do you think that, like, I mean, I'm gay, but do you think you can sponsor me? (laughs) And he was like, I don't give a shit who you fuck. Yeah, you ready (laughs) to get sober? And I was like, I think, yeah, let's go. And he said, all right, well, before I say yes, he said, call me every day for like 30 days. So there went my 30-day plan, and it kind of matched up with some accountability. Mm. Um, Which is key. Which is so cool. Like, you know, I definitely... I didn't know what I was doing in that moment. It felt mm-hmm. so uncomfortable. It felt so scary. It felt so weird to have a healthy man in my life being healthy to me um, and being kind to me and loving to me and just okay with his emotions to me. Not trying to get something Not out of you. Not trying to abuse, like, or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you for bringing that up. Like, there was no, because, I mean, at that point in my life, man, I had, I was very sick with, like, I think it blocked me, actually, from making genuine friendships with guys because I always had this, like, inner motive of, like, this, like, deceiving, I'm going to see if I can turn them out. I can, like, I'm going to see what I can do. I'm going to see what I can get. And, I mean, I didn't know that's what I was doing, but that's exactly what I was doing. Um, so I always felt fear around men. And I always felt like I compared myself to other men. And, you know, e- egomaniac with inferiority right. complex, here <laughs> I am. Um, but with him, it, it became a little different. Like, those phone calls started off with, like, Hey, um, what are you doing? And he's like, do you go to work? Do you make it on time? You know what I'm saying? Like, did you hit your knees and pray? Uh, did you read your meditation today? And it was just like little questions. Um, but that's exactly what I needed. I needed somebody who could see through my bullshit. And I didn't know he could see through my bullshit until around like day 31, maybe, or day 33, where he told me that I was full of shit and um, (laughs) I needed to stop trying to fake it and just sit down because I have no idea what it takes to stay sober or get sober. Mm. And that's the kind of sponsor I had. And that's exactly what kind of sponsor I needed. And a lot of people, 
a lot of people. Now, this is what I've learned, too, now that I've, I came and I stayed. Um, a lot of people get sober with different sponsors who sponsor differently, and that's okay. Yeah. Like for a long time, I didn't realize that, that was okay. I thought it was either rigid, telling the truth, brutal honesty out of the big book, or nothing. But, you know, now that I'm a sponsor and I'm working with other men, that's not who I am in my soul. Like, I'm not right. that sponsor. Now, thank God I was shown the truth and I was taught the truth um, because I'm always to share the truth, um, which is something I struggle with um, because I'm still that people pleaser. I'm still right. that I want to make a good impression because I don't want you to be upset at me or, you know, love me, love me, love me. Right. Somebody love me. Exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely fucking exhausting um so yeah he he that was like my first two months and then he was like okay he gave me a worksheet for my step one and then it was like how do you think you're powerless you know how was your life i mean just very basic generic getting me to work on something mm -hmm. and at this time you know i was i done told my boyfriend and i'm telling him like i'm sober and i'm going to these meetings now instead of going to the club with him you know, and we had been together six months up until that point before I got sober. And in that moment, I think we started to grow apart because oh. I didn't know how to chase the crowd anymore with him or be the, the monkey clapping on stage at the circus, like clap for me. And it was like, I'm trying to figure out who the hell I am finally. Um, yeah. And so we were together. I stayed sober. With my sponsor, I worked the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12 steps of recovery. Um, around that fourth step, let me not go right to the breakup. <laughs> I'm really quick to bring that up. Um, around the fourth step is where I realized this was serious and that I didn't know what sobriety meant and I didn't know if I was going to do this forever. But I was like, okay, I've built this relationship with at least one guy, one dude that I feel like I can trust, and it was my sponsor. I use that phone every day. I called him every day. I mean, I call him and be like, man, I didn't brush my teeth today. Am I going to drink? And he'd be like, no, just brush your teeth tonight. You know, like, <laughs> I mean, he just was there. Um, and so when we got to step four, I was thinking like, okay. I have a quick question. Bring it, please. Before you get to step four, how okay. did you reconcile with your struggles with step three? Okay, so step three was pretty much me realizing like the group could be me understanding, like, a power greater than myself that I couldn't and becoming willing to, like, go into step four. Mm -hmm. I wasn't truly able to take step three in the beginning, like, wholeheartedly mm -hmm. until after I'd kind of worked through step four and step five and got into step six and seven. See, I'm so glad you said that because th for me, I – I knew, like, what step, th and, and I didn't have any struggles with, like, the God thing or anything like that, but I had tr trouble really getting a grasp of, like, what step three really was. Right. And it just came later. Mm -hmm. And so it was like I kept doing what I, w what they said to do. Yes. And that part just came. It just came. And so I feel like a lot of times people struggle so hard with step two and three, and they think they can't move on to four or five, mm -hmm. six. But, like, it just comes. It just comes. And yeah. it's trust in the process. And thank God for good sponsorship. Right. Who mm -hmm. kind of who kind of steers you and says, like, 
you know, right now, step one and two and three, you'll always do that for the rest of your life. Yeah. But, like, we're going to do it the best you can right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but step four is where we're getting into action. Yes. And so, like, if you're willing, you know, you're honest, open-minded, and willing, mm-hmm. we can go into step four. Mm-hmm. But he made me learn the third step, prayer. Yes. Um, and he's like, you better learn it or I'm not going to be your sponsor. That's what he told me. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> so I, um, I memorized it, and y'all – Right before we started all this, before we went live and I had my eyes closed, mm-hmm. that was the prayer I was saying. I say it a lot. It just... It I say it every morning. Dude, literally, almost every morning or anytime I'm disturbed or anytime I'm scared or anytime I'm angry, anytime I'm anything, that prayer helps. Say it real quick, just in case someone's listening and they have no idea. Absolutely. Watch me fumble it. Uh, no. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou will. Relieve me of the bondage of self. So I may yeah, better do thy will. Take away my, my difficulties, difficulties so that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help. Of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life, may I do thy will always. Amen. Oh, it's a good one. Yeah, I mean, chills. Like, that's that's the meat of my recovery. And mm-hmm. when I didn't really fully grasp step three and, you know, I was getting ready for step four and I was writing all this shit down, I remember – after learning that, just that was how I developed a prayer life after running from God for so long. Was mm. saying that prayer over and over and over and over again. Oh, that's and amazing. God met me there. Yeah, he met me in, in me faking it. And I tell a lot of people that, and I do believe it. Like you said, like a lot of people are like, I can't go do this because I haven't. I don't really know if I'm really ready or whatever. I'm like, God will meet you in this journey if you just try, yeah, he meets you in this journey and you're not going to do anything perfectly except for step one. Mm. Right. Like step one, like we got to know we're an alcoholic or none of this is going to really work. Right. But you know, all the other stuff you're going to get better at. It's practice. Mm-hmm. Like just be ready. Suit up. Show up. Just show up. Let's, do it. Let's just fucking do it like Nike. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I can say that. <laughs> <laughs> sure. um, but yeah. So step four, I put all of my resentments and my fears and my sexual harms, which the sexual harm, sharing that with a straight man was very ooh, mm. scary, but it was just like whatever, because I was told the thing you leave off of your fourth step um, and your fifth step is the thing that you might get drunk over. Mm. Yeah, he didn't give a damn. Uh-uh, he <laughs> didn't. He's, he's, more wor- he's more concerned with you being thorough and honest. Like, Correct. I guarantee you he's heard everything that you probably said yeah. numerous times. Or done it yeah. himself, <laughs> exactly. which I found out he had, and it was cool. <laughs> like, not everything. Um, but, yeah, and that was the first time that I actually truly let another man into my – like my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I got healthier and as I kept coming back and my people, places, and things changed, which was vital for me. Yeah. Um, I mean, now let me not forget this, and I think it is important for me to share. I was going out to the clubs in early recovery, trying to still relive those people, places, and things. Mm-hmm. I was going You're to. playing with fire. I was yeah. playing with fire. I was. And now, you know, I, and I wasn't being honest with my sponsor about it. Mm. You know, I was so scared of like, what is he going to think if I'm right. doing the wrong thing? Well, he's probably going to tell me not to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, I, I mean, I, I was in New Orleans with my boyfriend, like chugging Red Bull on Bourbon Street at 3 a.m. sober two months. Mm. Ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. 
do not suggest at all. <laughs> and something my sponsor told me, and it's something I'll tell you, and I hope I don't get canceled over this, but if you're going to be stupid, you better be tough. Mm. That's what he told me because I was really silly. I was yeah. really silly. I like that word better. If you're going to be silly, be tough because I was very silly um, for thinking that I could still go live that life without the crutch of drugs and alcohol because right. it was miserable. Yeah. Absolutely. Mi- I didn't even enjoy myself. I bet. Um, but thank God, somehow, God doing for me what my silly tale could not do for myself. Yeah. Like, I was able to stay sober because I just knew I didn't want to go back to that insanity. Right. Like, I didn't even know what the word insanity was, but I knew that's what it felt like. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so I wouldn't suggest that to anyone. But I do forget to bring that up in my story, and that is a big part of my story because it was the complete opposite of what they tell you to do. And I did it. And just because I stayed sober or, you know, I'm here today, not everybody who plays with fire like that makes it out alive. Right. right. So how so how did you reconcile with God? You mentioned early in the podcast that, um, you know, there was the, the whole being gay and God thing for a lot of people that doesn't mesh very well. Right. And that keeps a lot of folks from being from being able to get sober and stay sober as a result of them thinking that, well, I'm going to hell because of this or whatever. So how did you reconcile and how did you come to the, your understanding of God as a loving and caring person and somebody that's not, you know, well, you're going to hell because you were born this way. Yeah, yeah. So how did that, what did that look like for you? I mean, it was in that fourth and fifth step, man. Um, it was having a loving sponsor who shared his his darkness with me and shared just like at the beginning, you said, you know, it's really nothing to regret because we get to use it to help another. That's exactly what that man did for me at, like, such an important time because I believe I was looking for excuses to go back out in the beginning. Probably subconsciously we all do because mm-hmm. that's what's normal, you know? Yeah. Um, and I was just waiting for somebody to mess up so that I could be the victim again and go do what I thought I really wanted to do. Right. Even though I had worked step one, two, and three on paper and, like, went through the motions. But when I put on that piece of paper that – I fear going to hell for being gay. And I shared that with another man and he helped me find my part, which I was thinking was going to be this big dramatic, you know, like I've done something wrong, but it was simply, I was just being who I was. That was my part. And God loved me and God wants me to be loved and God wants me to be myself. And there's been so many people who've ran away from God based off of people using their opinions and religion about things and sin and things they deem as sin and things they struggle with themselves, but they're not brave enough to talk about. But right now in this moment, I'm going to extend the love of God to you and say that he loves you and you're not going to hell. And girl, I was sitting there like boo hooing, boo hooing. It was the first, it was like what I craved from my father. Right. You know, like, although when I came out, my dad kind of gave me that, like, you're my firstborn. I love you no matter what. There was still, like, in his eyes, like, after being the martial artist or the baseball or the football or whatever else I played to do, I could tell, like, the letdown. But with my sponsor, there was, like, a genuine, you're okay. You're not going to hell. God, don't make mistakes. And let's move forward. And let's move forward. Like, who are you besides gay? Right. And that's what I didn't know. You know, I clinged on to being gay because that's the only thing that made me feel different. Um, Because I had no identity. And I had, I, I felt invisible growing up. I really did. 
Um, but that, when I found that in college and I started experimenting and, you know, whatever, I just remember feeling so, like, just with it. You know, mixed with drugs and alcohol, I felt like, right. oh, my God. Who's that? Yeah, it don't matter. <laughs> 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 but, yeah, so he, he extended that grace. And after that, I would love to say that I just automatically got comfortable in my skin and, you know, the rest was history, and I just rode out with Jesus in a Cadillac. But that's just not how it happened. Um, it more so looked like I felt that relief in that conversation, and I knew he meant business when he said what he said. But it was something I had to go seeking for and start developing that relationship. Now, like, the the walls were down because that, that, like, grace that was extended to me somehow made me feel like I can truly start seeking a power greater than myself. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when I started practicing prayer. I just started talking to God. And like I said, it started out with a third step prayer, but then it turned into me praying for my sponsor. I would pray for my sponsor because he told me he prayed for me, and I just thought that's what I should do, you know? And then it was, of course, the resentments that I found out about. Um, I would, he, because he told me anytime I'd call him angry or mad at somebody, he'd be like, go home and pray for him for two weeks and tell me about (laughs) it afterwards. And I'm like, okay, bet, I'll show you. So I pray those first couple nights, like, Lord, please let them know that <laughs> they have done messed up, and I will mess them up if they cross my path again, Jesus. <laughs> um, and then it turned into genuinely like, Lord, let me find my part. Let me not make this about me. Lord, let me see where they are sick like a, a patient dying of cancer. Like, let me see of how I can look at this differently so I can find some peace in it right? and stop being a fucking victim. Yeah. Well, the most important thing is – Finding our parts, absolutely. You know, because resentment, to me, it will it will absolutely destroy me. Absolutely, and I have a part in every resentment. Every one of them. Every single one of my resentments. Yeah. So today, I mean, by the grace of God, my first thought now when I get angry and or resentful is not to to lash out at that person. My, and this is takes this has taken practice and right. Still, something that I work on every day. But my first thought today is not. You know, how dare that person do that? I can't believe that. My first thought today is, okay, well, I'm pissed off. What's my part? Right. That's the first thing I think about today. Because we want peace. Right. We don't want to be right. Do you want to be happy and right? Right. I mean, do you want to be right or do you want to be at peace and be happy? Yeah. I I don't don't want... I don't want, I mean, there are, th- there are times when I want chaos, right? Know, that there just is. And I will always be that way. True. But today I don't, I don't act out on those, those feelings. I, I recognize them, internalize them, appreciate them as information. Yeah. And move on. Absolutely. That's it. That's it. Um, do you have any questions? We're getting a l- pretty close to the end of the, um, we've, we've been going for about an hour and 15 minutes. Oh my now. gosh. Oh, I know. Time has flown. We're getting flown. wild. I know. It's in. Absolutely fantastic. Is there anything else that you want to talk about? Oh, my God, so much. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We need to do, like, a part two. Okay, okay. So I love what you're talking about, about sponsorship. I think it's so important. First time I tried to get sober, I skipped that whole part because I was like, eh, not for me. Right. And, you know, lessons learned, so I'm glad you said that. Um, What are a couple things that you struggled with the most in early sobriety, and what are a couple things you learned that helped you stay sober? Um, I struggled definitely with the prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, I faked it a lot. Um, I faked it a lot. I was just, I did it out of fear. Mm-hmm. Um, but you still did it. But I still right, did it. Right, mm-hmm. right. Because I was taught it doesn't matter how I feel about what I'm doing. It just matters that I'm doing it. Exactly. Right. Um, and feelings are not facts. And mm. I really struggled with that. 
but now in my life, like, I'm so grateful that I know that because my feelings I are not I wish I would have learned that, t- like, 25 <laughs> years ago or something. Yeah. Like, that would have been amazing. Right. And I still <laughs> struggle. Like you said, I mean, you give me on the wrong day, and I will completely show you what kind of alcoholic I am. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, I don't have to live like that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'd say prayer. Um, you know, feelings are not facts. Um, taking the mask off that I had been wearing for so long and just trying to be my authentic self, mm-hmm. um, that was very difficult. And I kept those walls up in that mask with the community in AA for a very long time. And it became, oh, he's so positive. Oh, he's so light. And here I go again trying to impress a group of alcoholics and addicts who are trying to help save my life. Um, and then now, I'm just now to where I'm like, I don't, I don't have to perform. Um, I left that relationship that I was in. Mm-hmm. I'm single almost now a year. Um, you know, I have a business that reminds people not to put on a show. You get to write the rules. You get to throw the rule book out. Which like I want to talk start about. over. Yeah. Like how did Alex Christian Moore, this person who was a complete fake, right, a thief, yes, um, you know, just all over the place, couldn't show up on time for anything, like. How did that person all of a sudden, or not all of a sudden, become a person who says, you know what, I'm going to help other people with their lives? Absolutely. When did that happen, and what's that been like? Um, When I realized that, that is a great question. Thank you for asking. That's going to help me, like, wrap all of that up. Like, getting sober was probably the most hardest thing that I've ever done in my life, Mm. because it required, and y'all know, it requires truly, like, all of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All in. Or all out. And if mm-hmm. you, you know, so it was hard. But I got sober. I got the sponsor. I kept coming back to meetings. I started working the steps. I stayed open minded. I started developing a relationship with a creator that I can do business with, mm-hmm. you know, that I began to not have to fake it in prayer. And then I was enjoying time in prayer. I was looking forward to meditating. I was looking forward to those morning routines. And then I got myself into routine habits and like micro habits and, so sobriety just kind of like turned into this lifestyle that I didn't know existed. Mm-hmm. And I realized how good it made me feel. And I was thinking, I wish everybody had this program. I wish everybody had this way of life. Um, and I was thinking when the pandemic happened, early recovery, yeah, got laid off, you know, I had to fill my time with something. So in between playing Call of Duty, <laughs> you know, and drinking Dr. Pepper and gaining 40 pounds <laughs> and new sobriety, I started researching, like, what can you do to be yourself, help people, and be positive and make money? And the first time on Google, it popped up Life Coach, and I would never heard that word before or seen that. But as soon as I saw that word, I felt it in my spirit, and I was mm-hmm. like, that's exactly what I want to be. Um, and so I looked up, you know, New Skills Academy, and I got certified to be a Life Coach. And but right after that, it's like, sobriety's taught me to get into action. Just yes. do the next right thing. Even when you don't know what it is, ask for help. But, mm-hmm. like, do something. Right. Because if you're not going for- forward, you're going backwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just did that with, like, the life coaching business. And then I got my LLC. And then I got somebody to outsource my website. And I was, before I knew it, I was making T-shirts. And then it was my launch day, you know, 20, I think it was January 2021. Like, going into that, that was launch day. Um, and then January 22, I got into, I started my podcast. And then... You know, this year I've been doing coaching, podcasting, uh, a wellness company with Isogenics based out of Arizona, um, and then 
you know, the general manager of a restaurant and sponsoring men and giving away what's so freely given to me because if it wasn't for me getting sober with that man yeah. that scared the shit out of me almost four years ago, I would not be here right now wanting to live and wanting to help others live. Mm. I just wouldn't. And I know that. I'm not confused about alcoholism. I'm not confused about what I am or who I am. And before I'm any title, I'm Alex and I'm an alcoholic. Ooh. And I will always now. remember that. Go on now. Um, so, you know, I am a legacy of a lot of preachers, brother. So <laughs> I told him, I was like, I think I'll be a missionary one day. And I guess I am just, you know, yeah. in a different way. Right. So, yeah, that's how that happened. This is amazing. That is awesome. Y'all are amazing. <laughs> oh, stop it. No, for real, literally, like, I'm not used to being around people who are just so, I am, but I'm not used to me taking off the mask and me truly connecting and not being in those slots and those titles. Mm-hmm. And just, like, I'm just here and y'all are here and y'all are being open and vulnerable, which reminds me that it's safe to be open and vulnerable. So thank y'all for that. Yeah, That's one. I just one more quick question. Get it. So yeah. sorry. So with the life coach business and all this kind of stuff, do you struggle with put with having this mask on that's I've got it all together. I have to have it all together because I got to let you know, like you can too. Like, absolutely. How do you, what do you do with that? Well, for a long time, I just do it anyways and don't think about how I feel. Okay. I've gotten into therapy after the breakup. And Mm. so that'll, that'll put you, that's like getting sober. You're just like, Ooh, okay. I thought I was really killing it in life. Mm. Um, And so at this moment right now, and that's what I was talking to my best friend about last night. You know, I think as much as as far as I've come, I've still got so far to go. And I don't like owning that. And I don't like admitting that out loud. And, you know, it's very easy for me to want everybody to think, like, he's got it together. He's the life coach. But, you know, I, I haven't been to the gym in three months. I haven't been eating healthy and meal prepping in three months. Um, I've had maybe three clients this year. I mean, I've really pulled all the way back from at the speed and the rate I was doing things Mm -hmm. because I know it's just like every other time in my life. It's time to close a door and open a new one. And this time it's just going to be authentic and personal. Like this chapter is really personal to me. Mm. Um, And it's not so much about who I can help always and what they think of me or what I can do for them or anything like that. It's like, how am I showing up for myself silently behind the scenes of all of these things that I do? Yeah. And I found out I've kind of failed at that lately. Um, and so I'm just trying to get okay with that and set with loneliness and set with my body changing and gaining weight and, you know, all of the things that people struggle with and I have coached people on and through. And I'm just trying not to be the, the teacher right now and just be the student again. Um, so I'm not taking clients right now and I have one episode left of my third season of get more podcast and I'm also going to take a break from that and it'll just be restaurant management and, um, part-time residual income with the other and then it'll be, um, sponsoring men. I love that. And I love that you recognize, you know, this is, this isn't right for this season. Right. More personal chat. Like, I love that you're able to shift and be okay with the shift work through the shift like and you're still sober absolutely and when you talk I just sit there and think like god he's gonna help so many men he's gonna help so many men and it wasn't necessarily with this you're gonna help so many alcoholic and drug addict men and I I just see that as your purpose I pray 
and I, I just I just am so excited for everyone you come in contact with. Thank you so much. That's yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. I share that sentiment. I know, like I'm a, I'm like oh my god, don't make me cry again. Like I've almost <laughs> cried like three <laughs> times here. I am a grateful alcoholic today. Yeah. And I mean, it's just a good day to be sober today. And even through like times where I don't feel my best and I'm faking it still because I can be in those seasons and all of this, like I want to be sober more than I want anything else in my life. Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. without it, I know that I'm nothing and I'm going to turn right back to being that scared little boy that I once was. And I'm trying to be the man God wants me to be one day at a time. That's it. Yeah, that's it. That's it, dude. Thank you so much. Thank you. I mean, th- that's th- that's where we're ending. Yeah, yeah perfect. <laughs> I know, I know. I think we're all on the same wavelength. That's awesome. All right, cool, man. Alex, so hold on. Before we go, okay. how do people get in touch with you? I okay. know you're not taking clients, but if somebody wants to reach out and talk with you, how can they get in touch with you? Website, phone number if you want to give that, email Ooh. address, all of that. Lord Jesus. Okay, so you can find me. Or even like what meeting at Yana? Um, what okay, day so time? At, at meeting, so I chair meetings at, 515 to every other Tuesday. So this coming up Tuesday and then every other Tuesday from that. Um, 515. But I'm always at the 515 meeting. Like that's my home group. Traditions. Traditions. Love. Yep. And sometimes you'll catch me double dipping if I'm getting real quick, right? Sure. Um, but then you can find me on Facebook, Alex Christian Moore. You can find my business page, Get More, G-E-T-M-O-O-R-E, because my last name is Moore. So get more out of Love life. It. Love it. <laughs> um, and then you can find me on Instagram at the underscore more underscore post. You can find me on TikTok the same way, the underscore more underscore post. And then if you ever want to book a consultation or just talk or reach out to me, you can go to www.letsgetmore.com and reach out to me through that. That's my website. Awesome. Awesome. And shout out to uh, Sarah Sellers. She said, love, Alex. Oh, so love, go. Sarah. And Drew, we see your comments. Thanks, brother. I hope you all had fun today. All right. Um, Bryn Knox, thank you so much. Yeah, thank yeah. you, Bryn. You, did, and you knocked it out of the park. You were killing <laughs> it with yeah, the questions. Absolutely. Absolutely. You better watch out, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> all right, cool. Thank you so much, thank Alex. Thank you. And uh, we'll see you. Well, we're not having an episode next week because we're going. Uh, we've got uh, Easter. Uh, But we'll see you the week after that. All right. Thanks, ladies and gentlemen. We'll see you on the flip side. Thanks. Do we take our mics off?